It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Charlie Nardozzi, award-winning author of eight books, including Foodscaping and Vegetable Gardening for Dummies. And he is the former host of the PBS show you may be familiar with, Garden Smart. Charlie has worked for more than 30 years bringing expert gardening information to home gardeners around the world, and his new book coming out December 2020, that's right, next month, actually this month, by the time we're airing it, we're interviewing, we're doing this interview in November, but it's going to air in December, uh, is called The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Christy. Well, I'm really glad you're available to chat because I read I read through your book, uh, The Cool Springs Press Center me a review copy and I was looking at it like, wow, this, uh, this is right up my alley and my listeners will love to hear about this. But before we dive in, can you describe for our listeners where you live and what your garden looks like right now? Sure. So I live in Vermont um, and live uh, in the Champlain Valley, which is zone five. Uh, so this is what we call in Vermont stick season. That means all the, all the leaves have dropped, but the snow hasn't come yet. So when you look out in the landscape, you see a lot of trees, a lot of deciduous trees that look like sticks. So that's, that's where that comes from. Uh, so right now we're kind of wrapping up the garden season in our zone five garden um, we're still in, in the vegetable garden. We're still harvesting things like Brussels sprouts and parsnips and, and leeks and some greens and things of that nature. Um, tucking in some plants that are marginally hardy up here for the winter with some mulches, that kind of thing. Uh, we live on five, almost six acres, kind of, uh, I know. So jealous. <laughs> my that's my that's mouth like... hanging open right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful pastoral area. Um, it's old farm fields with a mix of some uh, deciduous tree forests around some rock ledges um yeah it's it's pretty sweet it's a pretty sweet place place so we've been here about 10 years now we built our house here and the first thing we had to do when we moved in is uh, decide how we're going to garden in a deer yard because right. deer, deer would just wander right through the fields this is their home it has been for centuries so we have a lot of fenced in areas we have a lot of fenced in the big vegetable flower areas all fenced in we have fences around individual orchard trees, that kind of stuff. So far, we've been pretty good. They haven't really destroyed everything. They, get, they take a little, we take a little, and hopefully everyone stays happy. Right. That's good. And I assume your fences are taller than four feet? Oh, yes. They're seven feet. <laughs> good. <laughs> that's nice. I know <clears throat> some people will do the double fence where they do a four-foot yeah. fence and then another four-foot fence three or four feet in from that, and that keeps because they, they can't jump over both at the same time, so it's yes. confusing. But Even the seven-foot fence, though, we had, I, I call them the, the uh, rambunctious juvenile deer probably were doing this. <laughs> One night this summer, they just tried to jump over it. And, of course, they couldn't make it all the way over, so they landed on the fence, knocked down the poles, went in, munched on a few kale plants, and then jumped out the other way and did the same thing. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a juvenile thing to do, doesn't it? Like a teenager kind of thing. Right. And the, the mothers are like, what the, you know. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm glad your garden is protected. That is something I think is really important. And I was going to ask you about, you know, do you do any cold season gardening? But it sounds like you shut down for the winter. 
Uh, yes, we have a greenhouse, a small nine by 12 greenhouse. It's unheated. So what I do in there is that I have a lot of greens. I grow some more kind of subtropical plants in there in the summer. We just finished harvesting the lemongrass and the gingers, for example. Uh, but now there's, there's chard and spinach and, and uh, other kinds of kale, so other greens that I will hold through the winter. So I do a, a method that actually I learned from Elliot Coleman um, in Maine, where he, um, you're, you're nodding, so you probably yes. uh, know who he is. Uh, so he takes floating row covers and puts them inside the greenhouse, and he gets that double layer of protection. So I can hold things through the winter, even if when we get temperatures down minus 10 minus 20 they they still survive that's nice and so yeah insulated garden fabric and a greenhouse that makes sense great Mm -hmm. nice well your new book explores no dig gardening in all of its possible forms it seems uh i found myself really drawn to it because you organize your material really in the way that nerds think. And I, I relate to that. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is great. Uh, so the term no dig, it's pretty self-explanatory, but I imagine you had your reasons for wanting to expound on this subject. So what led you to write this book? Well, I, I, I like to kind of reflect on my gardening life, as you say. Uh, so it kind of started with growing up in the shadow of my Italian uh, grandfather in Connecticut who had a farm and just kind of growing up like any young boy being enamored with the farm machinery, the tractors, the trucks, the plows, all that kind of stuff. And when I went to school, went to university and got my degree, um, it was still that came same kind of mentality. But then as I got out of school, started gardening myself and started working in the field and just being exposed to different uh, aspects of gardening, that's when it started evolving. And it started evolving from the, the traditional kind of chemical-based agriculture gardening that a lot of people grew up on to organics, which is kind of just really, it's a shift in the right direction, but it's really not much of a shift. You still have that same mentality of we're going to apply things to make things grow better and kill the insects, that kind of thing. And then it slowly continues to evolve. And I think like you and like any gardener, that's kind of one of the joys of gardening is that you're always learning stuff and you're always evolving. You're always trying new things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But this whole idea of not digging the soil and really kind of coming to the realization that the soil is really the lifeblood of the garden, not the plants, not the fertilizers, not the protections that you're doing from animals and insects, but the soil itself. Right. And so that's where you should start first. And then as I looked more into the soil, I started realizing, well, this whole idea of turning the soil and digging up the soil is really not a great idea. I mean, it gives you that temporary boost of fertility, which a lot of people experience when they start a new garden. It's like, wow, look at how things grew so well. Mm-hmm. But that's because you killed all the microbes right. <laughs> when you were tilling. And so they're, they're really feeding off the dead bodies of all these little microbes that are in there. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, yeah, death lot going of, on in there. A lot of carnage going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There. Um, so that got me started to experiment with this. And then, of course, one of the main tenets of no-dig gardening is using raised beds, which I've always used before. But now it's kind of taking me to another level of, yes, I have the raised beds, but no longer am I turning those raised beds. I'm just adding layers on top of it. No longer am I adding cover crops that I have to turn under in the spring because they made it through the winter because I don't want to disrupt that soil. And no longer am I pulling things out really vigorously in the fall, but I'm cutting them to the ground level. Again, trying to really protect the soil and, and keep it covered. So that's kind of the evolution that's happened. And um, I'm reading more stuff this winter where it's probably going to go a little bit further with some potions. <laughs> potions. Yeah, <laughs> you have you have a really nice, uh, there's a couple of charts in the book that break down what the ingredients are in your potting soil mix and some fertilizer and, you know, amendments that you can add. I thought that was really well put together. 
So in this book, you are covering lasagna gardening, sheet composting, keyhole gardens, raised beds, and the straw bale method, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. But I wondered, do you have a favorite that you found works really great for you or things that, you know, you just enjoy doing or see the best results from? Yeah. So one of the things I'm, I'm playing with, I'm not sure I, it's one of my favorites yet, but I want to talk about it anyway. Sure. <laughs> it's, an old, it's an old method that goes back to the 1950s, probably goes back further than that, by a woman named Ruth Stout. You, oh, and you know Ruth Stout. Yes. Oh, it's like we move in the same circles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she wrote a book years ago called The Low Maintenance Garden or The No Work Garden, something like that. And her whole premise was that why work harder when you don't have to? And that's one of the things I really love about no dig gardening is that it makes life a lot easier for the gardener too. It's great for all these other reasons we can expound for hours about all the benefits. But really the bottom line is you're not tilling, you're not turning soil, uh, you're not having to dig everything. You're letting the soil build up naturally. And what she would do is just put an eight inch thick layer of chopped leaves and straw and hay on her garden year round. There would never be a time when that garden would have bare soil. And she just let it decompose. And then what she found over a few years period is that as it decomposes, it's building up compost. So she didn't really have to dig so much anymore. She just moved things aside, maybe put a little compost out, put some seeds in, tuck it back in, and things grew. And in fact, they grew so well that she didn't really have to weed. She didn't have to water. She eventually stopped fertilizing. I mean, this is like the gardener's dream, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's a, there's a 20 minute documentary on her that I watched and it's so cute because she's just walking out in the garden and throwing potatoes into the piles of mulch that she's got lying around. She's like, there, I've planted potatoes. And that's right. it. And she's so, like cantankerous and defiant. And I love it. It's a great, I'm going to put a link it's, to it in the, in the yes, blog post for this too. So it's very, it's very fun. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm playing around with that. I mean, I'm only in a couple of years of, of playing with that. So I've already noticed, you know, mice damage and things like that, but it's worth exploring and, and kind of playing around with because the idea again is, is very no dig, meaning that you're not turning, you're just building. That's really kind of the basic bottom line. Instead of turning and trying to inject things into the soil, build them up like they would naturally in a forest, in a grassland, all those places where leaves drop, the, the top uh, plants and grasslands drop, they decompose, they turn the soil into compost and into good soil for growing. Yeah. And so where you live, are you particularly blessed or cursed with clay soil or sand soil where you live? Uh, clay soil, yes. Right, and so how how do you see the uh, the methods that you're implementing affecting that or changing that soil? Yeah, so the no-dig method usually uses a raised bed in one shape, form, or another. It could be a freestanding one where you just form the, the, the bed and don't have any sides on it, or more likely something that has a wood or a metal or a stone, whatever, um, outline to it that's a structured raised bed. So that's the nice thing about no-dig is that regardless of the kind of native soil you have, whether it's really bad sand or really bad clay or something in between gravelly, contaminated soils, I talk about that in, in cities, and in places where there might have been all kinds of petroleum products used or whatever. Whatever the soil is, you don't have to worry too much about it because you're building on top of it. You're building the soil naturally by adding these organic layers, adding, soil, adding topsoil, adding compost, whatever it is, to create a nice soil medium. So that's what we've done in our clay. You know, I had a little bit of a... I don't know, a dream, I guess. You When we first moved in, it's like, oh, we'll just plant in the clay. We'll work it out. It's like, no, no. <laughs> After a year, that, <laughs> no. no, we're not doing that. We're yeah. building raised beds, and we're going to do this right. And <clears throat> since we've done that, everything's been great. Nice. 
Uh, there are a couple of issues that I want to discuss that you touch on in the book. In the book, one is starting beds on top of perennial weeds, and the second is growing in straw bales. So here in Los Angeles, we have devil's grass, or, or AKA Bermuda, or couch grass. I see people making the assumption all the time that if they just put a layer of cardboard and some soil on top, that it'll die back. But it doesn't. It actually thrives in darkness. At least it does here, and because mm-hmm. we don't get a frost, and it's just persistent um so we i i always say you've just made it angry um and, it, and it's gonna come up everywhere now it's gonna come up right it just seeks an edge and then comes up right. but you discuss you have some tricks that you discuss in the book for eradicating perennial grasses before building the beds can you talk a little bit about that sure yeah i know where we are in our zone five climate we have a, a similar grass kind of called quack grass and mm-hmm. it's the same thing as the bermuda grass it has the rhizomes it spreads and it kind of pops up all over the place so um, that's just kind of a natural grass that's in the environment and you, and you just have to kind of deal with it. So if you have those kind of really tenacious grasses or tenacious perennial weeds, uh, the cardboard may not be enough exactly. So you can use uh, tarps, you can use plastic. In fact, one of the techniques that some uh, no-dig gardeners do is that they'll, they'll build up that soil with all the no-dig materials that we're talking about, then throw a tarp over the top of it, realizing that there is perennial weeds down there. They're going to come up. And then poke uh-huh. some holes in it, plant squashes, whatever it is in there, realizing that you're going to be, you're not going to be killing it because killing it is, is a long-term process, but you're going to be weakening it. And that's really the key. So it'll pop up through the holes where your plants are growing and you can pull them that way. But the rest of the, the, the root system, you might say, is going to get weakened over time. And then at the end of the growing season, you can pull the tarp off and it'll start coming up and then you can start doing some hand weeding. Mm-hmm. Because you have a no-dig medium now that's very uh, loose and very easy to pull things out, you can get a lot of the root system out, especially if it's been moistened. So you can start working at it that way, maybe coming back a second year or a third year with the tarp, but it, it, depending upon the situation. But the idea is that you're slowly <clears throat> weakening it and slowly kind of knocking it down so that eventually you'll be able to kind of weaken it enough that you won't need that tarp anymore. Yeah, I like the idea of building up. I mean, when when I see brand new permaculturists who've just gotten their their certificate, you know, and and they're like, we're gonna do a whole sheet layer, of, you know, sheet mulch thing, and they put down like six inches of material. I'm like, good luck with yeah. that. You know, it's we're talking like eighteen inches of material, really, yeah. really deep. And I think you even said in the book something like three feet. If you want to do right. a formal raised bed, that will, that'll definitely work. Yes. If you have a situation like you're describing with the Bermuda, Bermuda grass, you know, build a wooden raised bed made out of rot resistant woods. That's two, three feet tall, three feet tall is probably even better. Mm-hmm. That way you don't have to bend over so much. You can sit in a chair and garden. You keep the, the little rodents and the, the rabbits out, unless you got really big rabbits there in Southern California. I don't think so. <laughs> God, I hope not. I like hope R- not. R-O-U-S's, really right? <laughs> uh, and any of those weeds, are, I mean, they're tenacious, but they're not going to travel three feet up through that soil to actually pop out of the top. If they do, you should give them an award or something. Uh, seriously, <laughs> they deserve to exist if they can right. get out that top. All right. So that's the uh, perennial grasses question. Let's jump to the straw bale gardening question. I imagine it's much easier in climates where you get upwards of 30 to 50 inches of rain per year. But again, here in sunny Southern California and other climates where we get fewer than 15 inches of rain, I think we got nine last year Mm -hmm. Um, and usually all at once, you know, over a three month period of time. How do people overcome the issue of trying to keep a straw bale moist throughout the growing season? 
Yes, that is. I realize that is an issue in, in really hot, dry climates, especially in California, Arizona, places like that. Um, so I think the key with the bale is that to realize that it's a, a big lump of organic matter. <laughs> so, and, and like any lump of organic matter, think of a tree, for example. Once a tree starts rotting and gets really wet, it tends to stay moist for a long time, regardless of whether rain's coming down, wind, sun, all that stuff. I think that's the key with the straw bale gardening in a real hot, dry climate is to try to in the beginning, try to get it really moist um, and, and try to really keep it and keep it going that direction. Um, and once it's moist there and then those roots can start tunneling down into the center where it'll tend to stay moist, then your plants are going to have more likelihood of success. But that being said, you might want to go towards plants that can deal with a little bit of drought, you know, that can, mm. that don't necessarily need as much constant moisture all the time. You know, plants th that have a root system that can kind of handle that dry conditions. And, and that might be a little bit better um, for it to be more selective what you grow on. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations of what plants would do better in a straw bale than... Yeah, so, something that has a, a deeper root system, some of the brassicas, for example, because you're probably growing them in the winter this time of year. Yes, mine are right? just looking lovely right now lovely before the cabbage right worms get to them. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's always something, right? Yes, it is. Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, and that's another possibility. Now, if you're in that kind of climate where it's warm through the winter, maybe you're doing straw bale from October till March or, or February, March. And then when it's hot in the summer, you're not so much going with the straw bale. Right. But, but plants that have that deeper root system to them, uh, plants that uh, like artichokes, for example. I don't know if you can grow artichokes in Southern California. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So that, that would be another plant that I would suggest um, might be a, a good one for that kind of conditions. You know, plants that will do okay because they have strong enough roots where they can really penetrate down and get the moisture when they need it. Got it. And you have a recipe in the book for conditioning straw bales before using them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the whole idea with straw bale gardening, I don't profess to be like the expert or the originator of this. There are a number of other books out there that go into much more detail than mine. But what I like about what I did with my book is I really kind of introduced these topics to people, and I have a resource section. So you can just go dive into it. Whatever one suits your fancy, you just kind of dive into it a little further. So with the straw bale gardening, um, it's about two weeks is when you need to condition it. So you're going to be watering it every day. And then every other day, you're going to be putting down some fertilizer. It can be an organic fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, whatever one you want to do. And the idea is that after two weeks, the bale will start literally start decomposing. Uh -huh. you know, everything starts <laughs> warming up. And I, I didn't really believe it at first when I first started straw bale. It's like, it's not going to decompose in two weeks. But then after two weeks, I felt the bale. I was like, wow, that's warm. <laughs> Something's nice. going on here. Um, so that's what you really need to do to get it started. And once it's get it started, then it's just really a matter of um, keeping it watered, maybe do some supplemental fertilizing, depending upon what you're growing. I tend to grow tomatoes in ours. Um, I grew a cherry tomato on ours up against the fence, up against the deer fence. Around the, the deer end. fence that was still up, up and running still at up, the right. time. <laughs> <laughs> it got knocked over by the deer. Uh, um, and I never, I, to be honest with you, I never fertilized it all summer. It just oh. I watered it once in a while and it grew and I got tons of cherry tomatoes and I was happy. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. All right. It is tip time. Do you have oh. a favorite tip you'd like to share with the gardener and audience? Yes, I've got a tip. <laughs> I got a tip that goes back to Motown. This is a favorite song back in the seventies in Motown. You might've heard it. It's called chop and drop. Okay. 
I have got to <laughs> chop and drop. You know, just like the horn section, you can hear it. I can hear it, yeah. <laughs> so chop and drop is part of how you maintain a no-bed garden. And the idea is that, like I was mentioning in the beginning, you don't want to pull up the roots of plants because you're disturbing the soil. So as long as your plants that were growing there are not heavily diseased or insect-infested, Instead of pulling them out, cut them off at the ground level, chop them, and then don't get rid of that. I always, it always puzzled me why people take all the organic matter out of their garden, make a compost pile, right. make compost, and then put it back in the garden. Right. <laughs> so why don't you just leave it there? Yeah. So that's what this does. So instead of, for example, I just did our, bro our brassicas are ending, our broccoli and cauliflower and all that stuff. So I went out there with a hedge trimmer and literally just chopped it right down to the ground, okay. left all the organic matter on the soil. So it's going to protect it through the winter from erosion, from wind, from sun, from all of that stuff. Um, and then in the spring, I come in with a layer of compost to put on the top of that and plant literally right through it. Now, it is true that not everything will be decomposed in the spring. You have to be comfortable with that. Some mm -hmm. people are, some people are not. <laughs> some people are, are the neat gardeners that need everything kind of picked up and, and put away. Other are more like the messy gardeners. I'm more of a messy gardener. So it doesn't bother me that there's little broccoli stumps that I'm putting my lettuce in around. Eventually, it all decomposes and you're not disturbing the soil so it grows well. Yeah. And I have to interject a little thing that happened here because I did the same thing where I cut my brassicas down. But I usually when I'm growing a cover crop, I will cut, I'll take my shears and I'll actually cut right under soil level so they don't start growing back again. Right. And I didn't do that with my brassicas. And I now have uh, four Romanesco plants that came up over summer and they are about to set ahead. And I'm thrilled. I'm like, all right, free food. That's, great. That's great. Yeah. Um, but people should just be aware of that, that if they, you really should trim below soil level if you can and just, just right below soil level so they don't start growing back unless you want free food then you can exactly you want to play around with different things popping up and, and be a little more uh, laissez-faire about it you might say yeah yes that's definitely that's a good point especially again in a warmer climate where things will not die because of the cold um, in the winter so it's good to kind of chop them a little bit lower yeah and just to clarify it sounded like you put your compost over your biomass in the spring before you start planting again do you do a layer of compost at the end of the season before you let it go through that decomposition yeah. process in our climate, I tend not to do that because mm -hmm. we have a lot of moisture, a lot of rain and snow and ice. And again, I go back to that tenant of I don't want to have soil just exposed in the winter. That's We do that with everything now, with flower gardens, perennial gardens, everything. It's either got a mulch on it, a ground cover on it. Um, it's got something on it that's protecting that soil from okay. whatever elements happen in the winter. Okay, great. Works both ways, I guess. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that tip, Charlie, and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. Well, thanks for having me it's been fun yeah and how do people find you yes you can find me through my website uh, which is gardeningwithcharlie.com that's charlie spelled c-h-a-r-l-i-e gardeningwithcharlie.com and then you can find the book the complete guide to no dig gardening on the website it's, it'll be there you can find all my um, podcasts my videos my articles from different books um, my tours that i do a whole host of different things on that website yeah, I would love to go on a tour. That would, that sounds like so much fun. Yeah, that's it's really an inspiration. Unfortunately, because of the COVID year, we haven't gone anywhere. But we we're can... looking forward to 2021. <laughs> yeah, we can dream. So, <laughs> excellent. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to order Charlie's book, The Complete 
guide to no dig gardening and gar on gardennerd.com this week we'll also post links to his social oh did you have any social media feeds i didn't oh yeah <laughs> certainly you can find me on facebook and instagram and uh twitter and linkedin uh, just look for charlie nardozzi i'm gonna pop up and they, all those connections are on my website too okay got it perfect so we'll we'll be posting links to those social media feeds and the website as well on gardennerd.com this week. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!